how has the podcast been going? Or multiple Good. podcasts. You're sort of doing more than one all in the sideshow umbrella, which is cool. I've got a couple score guides to catch up on. Yeah, you do. Yeah, we've been uh, um, we've been doing. Uh, that's actually we, we've been focusing that down to three shows mm-hmm. because back in the day, you probably remember, man, we were doing five shows, five different rotating shows back in like 2015, 16, and stuff. So now we have the score guide, which uh, Wendell and I do. We have Main Street Monologue, which Todd and I do, and then there's the main show that Jen Wolf and Megan Coley do, and occasionally I pop on, but. Those three just kind of round out the whole thing, and it kind of keeps everybody from going crazy trying to do too much. So, and yeah, it, and it makes us fair. a little more consistent too. Wendell and I are able to put out a score guide every month, no problem. Every month, wow! I didn't realize that I was that behind. <laughs> I've got a couple in my podcast queue. Yeah, I mean, we do miss months every once in a while, but we try to do every month. Yeah, because they, they just take so long, man. They're like they're you know to get ready for one of those, you're talking like a week of prep, and then there's the sh- recording the show, and then for me to edit it, it's like two weeks of editing. You know. Oh, I completely understand. Yeah, I mean every every music cut is a creative choice, and like you know, you, it's but there's so much fun to do, and I can't imagine ever stopping the score guides, man. It would just kill me. Yeah, that's among my favorite things that you guys do is the score guides to be able to just like sit down and hit play and. Follow along. A lot of fun. Oh, thanks, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cinescope. This is episode 91. We're back for two in a row. So maybe there's a thing to this routine that I've got trying to continue going on now that we're hopefully towards the tail end of quarantine. We'll see. I have with me somebody who hasn't been on the show in a long time, composer friend, podcasting friend, Will Dodson. How are you doing, Will? Mr. Hopkins, I am great. Glad to be here. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm towards the tail end of my summer. I mean, we'll see what the school year looks like since uh, we don't know yeah. what's, yeah, that's a whole other discussion, but I'm doing okay. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> glad to hear that you're doing okay. And in fact, since you've last been on the show, which was a long time ago, we decided um, <laughs> you have gotten <laughs> engaged, which is yes. fantastic. Congratulations on your engagement. Thank you very much. I'm a very lucky man. Very, very lucky man. Well, just because it has been such a long time, I don't even, I guess the last episode you would have been on would have been 52, I think, was when we did Tomorrowland, because that was Tomorrowland. Be the, the one year anniversary of the show. Wow. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we haven't done as many episodes over the years. It's been a while. It has definitely been a while. Who are you? What do you do? And where might people know your, your dulcet tones? <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I am the senior producer and one of the hosts of Sideshow Sound Radio. It's a podcast network that primarily delves into film music. It's the scores we love and why we love them. And we also have some Disney shows on there like Mouse Music and Main Street Monologue. That's what I do as a podcaster, but I'm also a professional composer. And uh, you might find me uh, writing music for various interactive theater productions and short films and web stuff and uh, all kinds of shenanigans. So I'm pretty much... I'm omnipresent. <laughs> On my best days, I'm omnipresent. <laughs> it's funny. I want to highlight something you said because I don't know if I inadvertently ripped off Cinescope's sort of tagline from Sideshow Sound, but you just said the scores we love and why we love them. That is oh, the that's exact right. yeah. phrasing I use. 
<laughs> when when uh, broadcasting Cinescope to people. So I don't know if that was an inadvertent steal from me. No, no, we we um we when we launched in 2014, we actually because we're all composers and we all work in the industry, we were like, well, we don't want to do soundtrack reviews because that's sort of kind of a conflict of interest. You know, if you ever work for a director, or, you know, a composer that you you know whose whose score you review. So we basically just said we're going to talk about the scores we love and we're going to talk about why we love them, and that's what the whole you know, business model for Sideshow Sound Radio has been since, since the early days. So that's probably why we're kindred spirits, mm-hmm. you know, you and I. Because, yeah, we're, we're not really into, into, you know, negativity on our network either. We, if we don't like a score, we just don't talk about it. But, yeah, I think it's a great slogan for everybody who wants to use it. Yeah, I think so. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and so definitely go check out Sideshow Sound, especially for their film score content, because they do something called Score Guides, where they take you through a release of a score, track by track by track, and chart where it took place in the film, and the instrumentation you hear, and how it highlights certain things that are happening on screen. It is fantastic. I love it. And if if you're not much of a score person, like you don't know how to listen to film scores or you don't know how to appreciate them i think that those guys are a great great place to start thank you yeah that's always the goal if we can if we can turn a, a few ears towards the wonderful world of film music that's kind of why we why we do what we do and of course like there's a lot of people who are un- unfortunately intimidated by orchestral music in general and mm-hmm. that's that's such a shame because you know the the barrier for entry is not that great you know all you have to do is kind of jump in with both feet and just have a good time and listen to what what kind of uh you know, sets your ears on fire, so to speak. So that's what we hope to do with our with our shows. And thank you for the kind words, my friend, because that's that's what we do it for. Well, speaking of jumping in with both feet, let's let's <laughs> jump in the deep end. <laughs> yeah, and let's talk about our movie. We're talking about Jaws. What a perfect way to sort of cap off the summer. I mean, I, can't, I say cap yeah. off. We still got July and August ahead of us, but this is the summer blockbuster to end all summer blockbusters. Widely known as the first one. It was released on June 20th of 1975 and was directed by Steven Spielberg. I'm not going to go over his filmography because you know it. It was written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb. The book it's based on, Jaws, was by Peter Benchley. Music is by John Williams. Again, I'm not going to tell you what films he's composed for because you know it already. And this movie stars Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, Lorraine Gary, and Murray Hamilton. So... As we always do, Will, do you remember your first experience with this movie or sort of your experience over the years in watching it or listening to it or whatever else you want to highlight? I don't remember when I saw it for the first time. It's one of those movies, and I'm sure you can relate to this. It's one of those movies that's just kind of always existed (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, because it came out like years before you were born, I was born. I remember seeing clips of it on TV when I was a kid and being, you know, obviously terrified by it and, you know, just. I don't even remember what scene I saw, but I'm sure it was something that scarred me for life because I'm also a surfer. I grew up in southeastern Florida and I've surfed my whole life and I've always had a healthy fear of sharks. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm I'm sure that like so many people, this movie is the reason why, you know, because for the most part, sharks aren't that dangerous. Uh, you know, if you look at the statistics, you're more likely to die a million other ways than by a shark attack. But it doesn't really make much of a difference when you're 30 feet out in the water sitting on a surfboard just bobbing in the water like a freaking duck you know so this movie uh, has definitely ingrained a, a healthy fear of sharks in my mind and i'm sure so many other people so i don't remember when i saw it for the first time but when i grew to be uh you know a young man and i started to really dive into the uh, the art of filmmaking and, and really obsessing and nerding out over filmmakers like steven spielberg and like so many others um of course, I, I watched it with an adult eye, and it's just 
there's no word that's going to properly, I think, explain how great this film is. It's it's literally a masterpiece. I mean, it's there's nothing about this film that's 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 wrong. There's nothing about it that isn't just masterfully done in every department, art department, directing, obviously, film score, which we'll get into. It's just acting. I mean, everything is just incredibly perfect, pitch perfect, you know? So um, it gets better every time I see it. I just watched it again last night um, and was, you know, just thoroughly enjoying myself at every turn. Very, very well done movie. And and I uh, we're going to do a score guide on it eventually. I don't know why we haven't, but um, I'm, I'm itching to talk about that that theme with you. <laughs> so yeah. that's pretty much where I'll, where I'll stop for now because I'll probably start diving into that if I'm not careful. You, you mentioned movies that we've known all our life. I, I've obviously known of this movie all my life. I think anybody who has owned or seen a TV set at some point in their lives is familiar with Jaws in some respects. Yes. But over the years, I think I've maybe had one, this, this is sort of shameful, I've maybe had one full, complete, like I sat down in front of the TV with the intention to watch Jaws watch through. No kidding. I'd seen bits and pieces of it with my dad when he'd watch it on TV, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, like I especially remember the singing scene. I remember the climax of the film with the, the air tank and the explosion and all that. But I, I just, I don't remember a lot of times where I sat down from the beginning and watched all the way through. And part of it is maybe just the genre of the film. It is kind of considered a quote horror film in certain respects. It's, it's got some scary elements to it. Yeah. And I hadn't dived into the horror genre until I was 18, basically, and I was going into college. And so it's just not a movie that I've had a whole lot of repeated viewings of. But I mean, obviously, all the things you said are true. It's it's basically, for all intents and purposes, a perfect movie. And man, it's Spielberg's like second movie, too. I mean, he had Duel, which was like a student I know. picture, as far as I understand. I don't know if it had like a full release. I, I don't, yeah, I guess it did. Duel, The Sugarland Express, which hardly anybody has actually heard of. It's got a great theme, but hardly anybody's heard of it. And then you've got Jaws. And so like right out the gate, this guy was hitting the ground running and making near perfect, if not full perfect movies. And Jaws is definitely one of those. You couldn't agree more. Now let's just go ahead and dive into story content. I mean, the, the big thing about this movie is that people who are into film, people who have done any sort of background research on this, or maybe even just talking with friends know that this movie was plagued with sort of production issues uh, mm-hmm. because of <laughs> mechanical issues with the shark. It was just a whole lot of nonsense. And I was reading a quote from Spielberg earlier where he basically said something like, because of all these these malfunctions, because of the difficulties that we had filming this, it turned into it turned from like a, a Harryhausen monster epic into an Alfred Hitchcock, the the less you see, the more you get kind of thing. And that is certainly to the movie's success i think is that you get so little of the shark until really the last like quarter of the film and that's something that i find it it impresses me so much when i watch the film each and every time because of course once you've seen it a few times you, you you're very familiar with how things pan out but the thing that always takes me off guard is the way the shark is replaced in other words the way we see the shark is just completely replaced by first of all the music Things like the barrels, which I'm sure we'll get into, the dock that breaks off, you know, the camera angles mm-hmm. are, you know, that that that's the shark at certain points in the film to great effect. It's incredible. And it's and it is, I believe, much scarier because you don't see the shark. I mean, you get, I think, maybe four shots of it total in the whole movie. And and I personally think it looks real. I I, 
I've heard people say they think it looks fake. I don't think it looks fake. I think the way they framed it, the way they shot it, and the way they edited it really mitigates anything that could be considered, you know, fake. And, and it's really, I think, a better movie. Be, I mean, obviously, a better film because of that, that Hitchcockian thing you mentioned. I mean, you know, the rule in, in storytelling is show, don't tell. But I think in Hitchcock films, and especially in Jaws, the opposite is very true. It's the threat of the shark that's so scary. Even when you see the tiger shark, you know, midway through the movie, when they think they've found the shark that's been responsible for, for the killings, basically you find out, well, this isn't the shark. What, what's, you know, doing this is much bigger than this, you know, <laughs> massive 14-foot tiger shark that you're looking at. I mean, that's scary. If this thing didn't do it, you know, and if there's a worse shark out there, how big is that shark? Right. <laughs> and there's one shot in the film that I always forget about until I watch it again. And it's when you see the silhouette of the shark going past the boat on the left-hand side. And you see, for the first time, the scale of this thing. Uh-huh. Because we, you know, we're so familiar with, with, with Quint's boat at this point. We've been on it for like a half an hour in the movie. And you see this long silhouette of the shark just going past the boat. And it's way longer than the boat. And you're like, oh my God. And it's taken us the whole movie to get to that point. It's earned at that point. You know, we don't need this big gratuitous money shot of the shark. We need, you know, something that's still kind of a slow burn. And, and that, that shot, I'm telling it's just such a masterful thing. That and the T-Rex shot from Jurassic Park are just the two greatest Spielbergian monster moments, I think. And the way they use that lack of shark throughout so much of the film to build the suspense. Yeah. The first scene where we're actually on the beach, not, not the very, very beginning, sort of the prologue where the, yeah. the first girl gets killed. But the first time you're on the beach, the mayor has talked down Brody from closing the beach. Uh, Brody is on the beach with his wife and is surveying the people enjoying the beach. And he's like looking out among people. And you know, because of storytelling rules and things happening in movies, the way it works, that <laughs> something's got to happen. But you don't know when, you don't know to who, you don't know what it's going to look like. Right. And so as he's scanning and we're in sort of Brody's perspective from one person to the other out in the water, you wonder, oh, is this it? No, no. Okay. That person's safe for now. Is this person <laughs> going? Oh, no, not that one either. And so the, the tension is building because you know that something's got to happen and they just ramp it up, ramp it up. Ramp. Okay. Now it's time to strike and the music starts and you take the shark's perspective like you did at the very start of the film where you're sort of yeah. underwater and you're looking up at the, the quote victim. and it's it's horrifying and then that camera zoom effect on brody as he realizes that what he feared is happening is actually happening that i don't know is there a technical term well i'm sure there is a technical term do you know the technical term for that zoom i don't know the technical term but if i'm not mistaken isn't that achieved by zooming in while walking away or is it the yes. other way around I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right you zoom in on your subject which in this case would have been uh, Brody's face, and, but but you're actually panning out at the same time, something like that. Yeah. In fact, I've seen tutorials on how you can do the exact same thing with your iPhone. So. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that that can make some good gifts of yourself. Yeah. Oh, for sure, <laughs> absolutely. But it, it's just genius suspense and storytelling just through the lack of showing you something, and it's not just the fact that the shark's not there. It's it's the potential of what might happen when the shark is there. That's the genius of it. Yeah, and that scene just it completely disarms you because I mean, like you said, you know based on the rules of storytelling that something has to happen on that beach. We're on, you know, we're sort of on heightened alert at this point, but the fact that you know, we're we're hearing people complain about neighbors and we're seeing the, you know, the old guy with the funny hat and all that stuff. I mean, it, you know, you're sort of you're you're disarmed and, and and taken off guard a little bit. You know, your your guard's lowered, you know, at the point when the 
when the mm-hmm. attack actually happens. And, and, you know, that scene plays out for a while, too, before they get to the shark attack. So, yeah, there's definitely, it's, it's like an undercurrent of threat, not to use that pun, but, you know, that, that uh, permeates, you know, each of these attacks or leading up to each of these attacks, but in completely different ways each time out. And that's another masterful storytelling touch by Spielberg. Just perfectly done. And then you mentioned the barrels earlier. What's really cool about the barrels is obviously all the things we've already been talking about, about how they, it's sort of a stand-in for the shark and it, it builds a suspense because you see the, the barrels coming, which means that you know that the shark is coming. Yeah. But I love how at the very end of the film, the, the barrels flip from a sort of terrifying impending doom to the, the salvation for yes. Brody and for Hooper as they cling to the barrels and paddle to shore. It's a really nice flip of expect not expectations but a flip of the the usage of those yeah it's kind of a release of tension too for for Mm -hmm. everybody who's just been through that whole experience you know because yeah like you said they're they they are the signifier of the shark just under the water you know for the whole movie and you buy it too i mean it's i don't at no point knowing even knowing as much about this film as we both do at no point am I looking at those barrels and going, well, that's not a shark underneath there. Like I, right. you know, in my, in my heart of hearts, I know that thing is down there and it's, it's awesome. Are there any other story or filmmaking aspects you wanted to highlight before we get to character discussion? Yeah, I think we've kind of covered it. It's just the suspense is never cheap in this film. And, and I mean, really nothing is, but we're going to get to character in a second, obviously. But, you know, the character building is, I think, the, the, the special sauce of this movie, as it is with probably every Spielberg movie that we love. Mm-hmm. That, mixed with just the great way he he builds real suspense in this film is just something that my hat goes off to him for that i want to mention one more thing before we get to characters the way they set up the explosion at the end when they Mm -hmm. first get onto the boat and uh brody knocks over the air canisters and hooper says be careful these things are going to explode (laughs) that's such a great (laughs) way to set up what eventually pays off later in the film and it, it gives obviously brody a reason to strategize using those right yeah it's a nice little red herring yeah well speaking of brody let's go into character talk what do you have to say about brody from the start of the film well i like that he's not an archetype that's Mm -hmm. one i mean again that's a spielberg thing you know these people feel real and that's you know we we, you know we talked about lincoln so many years ago uh you myself and uh ian crab the first Mm -hmm. time i was on the show and character is such an important part of any Spielberg movie. And if you watch his film, I mean, especially if you pay close attention, so much care is taken in terms of, first of all, letting you get to know these characters, but then caring about them. Because if you don't care about these people, the movie's just not going to grab you at all. And that's why so many summer blockbusters that go $500 million budgets and all that stuff, but don't spend enough time, you know, actually developing characters that we care about. um, That's why they, they sort of fall flat so often because you have to be brought into that world. So Brody is the perfect, I guess, hero. He's not, he is the hero at the end of the day, I guess. But he's not like a Han Solo or a you know Indiana Jones or anything like that. He's just a normal guy who's trying to protect his town and do the right thing. And he's obviously flawed, although we don't, you know, we get hints that he's a flawed character, but it's not shoved in our throats or anything like that. And of course, you know, Roy Scheider played him to perfection. So yeah, great character. And, and really, he's our window into this world. He's a man who just wants to do his job. There's a shark attack. We mm-hmm. close the beach until the shark problem is fixed. Like that, that's, that's right. what it boils down to him, at least at the very start of the film. And then as he's trying to go about his business, taking care of this, we got to close the beach. 
everybody is reacting around him, not realizing the weight of what's happened or what might potentially happen in the future, the implications of this shark attack. They, they treat him like it's business as usual. It's like, take care of this truck in front of my store. These students who are karateing the fence, this, that, and the yeah. other thing. And meanwhile, he's just trying to get a hold of the situation. And when he steps in and tries to do his job and says, okay, paint these signs. We're going to close the beach. And then the mayor catches wind and oof, there's the, the timing of this discussion was not intentional, but there <laughs> have already been the memes made in regards to yes. closing down the beach and the benefits of doing uh-huh. that early rather than doing it later. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really need to dive yep. too deeply into the, the implications of that to today's society. But here you have a man who is more concerned about his public image and about the money of the situation than this other man, than Brody, who was just trying to do his job, which is to protect the people that he has been hired to protect. And not even just that he's been hired to protect them. He wants to protect his family. He wants to protect the people he cares about because it's the decent thing to do. So I like Brody. Yes, he's flawed. He's, he's afraid of the water from the start of the film and doesn't want to drown but then the shark just gives him one more thing (laughs) but it gives him something to sort of overcome over the course of the film and i love when he finally buckles down and tells the mayor this is the way things are going to go you're going to sign your name because that's what you're really good at doing and we're going to pay this man a lot of money to take care of our shark problem so no more people die at your hand (laughs) yeah he sort of gives him an out he's like he's like look you got to do what you got to do here man and and again you know he's not archetypal he's not like a superhero he's just a normal guy who's Mm -hmm. trying to do his job and trying to protect people and i do really appreciate that about this movie no one is like a caricature of of who they'd be in real life they really are these people they feel real and that's that's huge for any movie and when the moment comes there's a moment where his wife sort of gives him an out to to leave and to to let this be somebody else's problem since the mayor up to this point has been so unhelpful in helping him to do his job when we get to the shark attack on the 4th of July and his son is nearly killed. Yeah. They're at the hospital and mm-hmm. he tells his wife, take him home, take, take our son home. And she says to New York, cause that's where they were before this. And he, he sort of buckles down and says, mm-hmm. no, my job is to be here. Take him home here and I will protect here because that, that is my job. That is what I'm here to do. And that's when he confronts the mayor. So he, he's a character who, who has principles, who, yes, has his fears, but he's going to do what he can to overcome those fears and to, to again, to protect people. I mean, that's what it boils down to. And that's what makes him a good yeah. police chief is that he is trying to do his job to the best of his ability. Absolutely. What character next? Why don't we talk about Quint? Oh, Quint. He's a fun <laughs> character. He is a loner. He knows the importance of respecting this creature, and that's what sort of sets him apart from everybody else, even apart from Hooper. Um, We can talk about him in a minute, too, but Hooper has sort of like this intellectual knowledge of what sharks are and what they can do. But Quint has like been in the water with them. We get that harrowing story of his Mm. time on the USS Indianapolis in World War II. Yes. And it gives you insight into why he hunts sharks for a living, why he's so eager to do this, and maybe even a glimpse into why he drinks so much while he's doing it. Like it, something's got to dull the pain and what better way to dull the pain than alcohol and revenge yeah. for all of his lost companions or whatever you want to say. He's bossy. 
he's misogynistic. He makes some offhanded comments about women as they're boarding the, the ship. So obviously he's far from perfect, but he knows his job. And as they, they spend more time together, the, the three of them, Brody, Hooper, and Quint, they start to understand each other. And when push comes to shove and the shark's batting down the, the boat, they, they defer to Quint's expertise because he clearly knows how to handle the situation. If I may, I want to backtrack back to the USS Indianapolis scene because Mm -hmm. to me, that's, for my money, the the best scene in the movie. And how ironic is it that the best, if, if, you know, people were to agree with me, that the best scene in the film is just a dialogue scene that has absolutely nothing to do, well, not nothing to do, but it has pretty much nothing to do with, with the story we're watching, you know, other than to tell us a little bit more about Quint and how he became the person he is today. And the the thing that really gets me every time is when he describes the eyes of sharks and talks about mm-hmm. how they're, you know, dead doll eyes, you know, and there's just nothing happening, but it's so, I mean, the tension just goes from, you know, a moment earlier, they're showing each other their scars and they're joking and they're all, you know, they're all drunk and it's, you know, kind of a fun time on the ocean to this very serious, very chilling reminder of what they're out there to face uh, and, and what they're up against. And of course, the harrowing retelling of what happened to the survivors of the USS Indianapolis. And it's just remarkably great cinema. It's just so, and it just gets me every time. You could hear a pin drop, you know, in my house when that's on, because we're all, you know, just watching it. It's so good. And, uh, of course, Robert Shaw was amazing and apparently very difficult to work with as well, from what I understand. <laughs> what a way to end that speech with, well, anyways, we delivered the bomb. And you're just left thinking, at what cost? You know, like, at what cost did you deliver this bomb? You said 1,100 men went into the water and 300-something, less than 400, come out. So that was the cost, apparently, aside from other things to consider. Yeah, it's incredible. Such a great scene. I mean, that's one that's got to be one of the top 10 most memorable scenes in cinema history. I think so, too. And, you know, you hear it parodied in things, too. So, I mean, I was reading earlier as well that that scene, Robert Shaw actually had a large hand in writing that that speech because he was a playwright. Right. Uh, I'm reading right now that there was like a three quarter of a page speech that was then turned into a monologue, and then that monologue was then rewritten by Shaw. And so no kidding. He's, like, re- he's reading his own words, which is fantastic. I love that he had such an insight into his character and how to deliver that to maximum effect and stuff like that. And apparently he didn't get along with Richard Dreyfus, who I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. So yeah. the tension <laughs> between those two is pretty apparent on screen, and I think it adds to the, to the film as well. Kind of in a Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, you know, in heat sort of way where they didn't like each other when they made that film. So, yeah, I think it adds to it as well. One thing that Quint's character helps to accomplish is that he helps us to realize how out of the ordinary this shark is. Right. He has this moment towards the end of the film where he says, oh, that thing can't stay under with three barrels as we watch it go under with three barrels. (laughs) (laughs) And at that point, he relents to doing things completely his way his own way and says, okay, Hooper, what was your plan? The spear thing that you brought, what can that do? Right. So he, he is stubborn. He does have his own way of doing things, but at least in the end, he is willing to try something else when he realizes that 
he maybe doesn't know the perfect solution to hunt this thing down. And that hints back to something he says earlier when they first encounter the shark on the boat and Hooper is giving him a hard time. He's trying to fight against his authority or whatever. And Quint says, all your money, all your fancy degrees don't prepare you to admit when you're wrong or something to that effect. And right. so here at the end of the film, Quint is fulfilling what he was accusing Hooper of being unable to do. He's admitting he was wrong and going after another course of action. And it's such a subtle shift in, in character that you hardly notice it, but it is, it is there, you know, and that's just the brilliance of not only the writing, but, but the acting as well, because the story ebbs and flows at the whims of these characters. And there's just not a piece missing or, or, or out of place, you know, in, in any of these characters or any of these, you know, story elements. Now, let's talk about Hooper. What do you have to say about him? Well, Hooper apparently is uh, very much on purpose meant to be a bit of a, 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 of a cinematic uh, Steven Spielberg. And I think you can see that in the characterization as well. He's great. He is the, uh, you, you know, you always need a character whom when they deliver information, expository information, you know it's true. And so, you know, in, in Harry Potter, that would be Dumbledore or Hermione. Uh, in Star Wars, that could be Yoda or Obi-Wan. You know, you, there's, a, there's a mentor or a very smart individual who, you, you know, when they deliver exposition, the audience believes it. And that's, to me, the purpose that Matt Hooper serves. And I think Richard Dreyfus killed it. I think, you know, he, he plays off of the dynamic of Brody and Quint as the, I don't want to say the, you know, the comic relief, because he's not comic relief, but he is the lighter element in that sort of tonal tapestry, if you will. So I love his character. And, you know, he also plays his part in ramping up the tension as he's giving us the audience information we didn't know other, you know, but beforehand, you know, when they, when they catch the tiger shark, for example, you know, and he's basically saying, this is not the shark you're looking for. Mm -hmm. You believe him, even though the story would maybe have you believe that they did catch the shark. So yeah, he's a great character. What did you think of him? Well, he's sort of the indictment of the mayor and the the medical examiner as well, mm -hmm. because he comes in and he is hugely shocked by the way things have been handled up to this point. Even though there's only been the, the two attacks, he sees the remains of the first girl and he turns to the medical examiner and says, there's no way, no way this was a boating accident. Right. And I mean, it was probably obvious. And that shows the 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 mayor's sort of corruption the the way he got the medical examiner to backtrack his instincts yeah so he reveals to the audience just how misplaced the mayor and the the medical examiner were and he says did you notify the coast guard did you search the waters yourself did you do your job and right so he he almost plays as a little bit of a, a conscience to Brody by saying listen, this is a lot more serious than you've played it up to be to people and you need to get up and you need to do your job and you need to make sure that this is handled so that no more people die. And Brody, you know, he tries, but he also still has to deal with the mayor at that point. It's funny because at first glance, he's the closest character besides maybe the mayor who gets close to maybe being an archetypal on the nose thing, like, get out of the way, the expert's here, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, you spend more than a minute with him and you realize he's a little, a little more layered than that. And of course, that's got everything to do with Richard Dreyfus who played him. Because the mayor's a little bit on the nose as well in terms of, the, I'm the mayor and I'm going to, you know, make this mm -hmm. town, you know, all that stuff. So those two characters, I feel like, get close to traditional archetypes i guess but but because of the great acting and the great writing they they very quickly veer away from that but i do love his character and i think he's simultaneously 
a reason the movie is so suspenseful and why it's also at times very funny. Because it's amazingly both of those things, you know, oftentimes in the same scene, which is a, a feat unto itself. Yeah, you have the, the moment where he's like acting like a five-year-old mimicking Quint after Quint yeah. sort of told him to go do your job. I'm doing mine. Trust me to, to know what I'm talking about. But then you have that scene right before the Indianapolis speech where, I mean, him and Quint are yucking it up. They're drinking together, showing off scars. And that, that scene's a lot of fun. It is. And it switches on a dime. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's incredible. All it takes is for Brody to ask about the scar on Quint's arm. And of course, Hooper at that point says something. I don't remember exactly what he says it was, but he, he makes a joke and he laughs because, of course, he's hilarious when he's drunk. Right. And then the ball drops and it's not funny anymore. And you see that reflected in Hooper's face as well. As Quint is telling his story, I mean, obviously, Hooper is right next to him. You see him behind him and you're able to see his reaction. And it's a very sobering effect considering how much laughter and drinking was happening just a minute before. Right. So well done. And I do want to mention something just in case I forget or we don't cover it. Uh, there is one thing about this film, and it's in pretty much every Spielberg film I've ever seen. I think we may have even discussed this when we talked about Lincoln a few years ago. But one thing that Spielberg does more than anyone, I think, is he gives his characters some menial thing to do while they're in the middle of a dialogue scene. Like, for example, we talked about Lincoln sharpening the pencil and then wiping the shavings off of his leg while he's talking about being a lawyer in, you know, Illinois and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, you know, Brody's opening a, a bottle of wine while, while you know, while, while there's a very important dialogue scene going, going on with dinner. And that, to me, connects these characters to you even more, you know, in terms of believing that they're real people, not words on a page. You know, there's a scene when the mayor's talking to Brody and they're on, you know, one of those barges that, that take cars across the bay. You know, it's, it's like stuff like that. It places you in the scene and it really, I feel, immerses you further into the world because it just feels like these are real people doing real things. And I believe it's in every Spielberg film I've ever seen. There's just a real menial task being done that's just completely unrelated to what's being talked about. And I love Spielberg for that because I, I feel it's, I feel more directors should do that. Yeah, it can be unrelated as just sort of like a, a, a way for the character to occupy their hands so they're not just staring at each other while they're talking. Mm -hmm. uh, but Spielberg is also really good at flipping that in order to make it purposeful in the story, too. Like the example you just gave with them being on the barge. Yeah, that gives an interesting setting. It adds moving background, which is cool. Mm -hmm. But what that scene also shows is the power that the mayor is able to exercise in that moment. because. Brody got on that barge with the intent of stopping the Boy Scouts who were swimming on the other side. Right. And by the time they get to that other side, the mayor just says to the, the driver, the captain or whatever, okay, let's go back to the other side. We're not going to do what we originally set out to do. So it's a, a sort of transformation that occurs during that setting change that you don't really pay attention to. And by the time you get over there, it's like, oh, well, we're not going to do that anyway. So. And yeah, he, he sometimes uses that device narratively, which is awesome. But sometimes he doesn't. And I really appreciate that, too, because it's like in The Empire Strikes Back when Han is talking to Leia and he's just flipping through the computer screen and he's telling her that, that they're going to go to Cloud City. And it's just the fact that he's doing this menial thing and you see the you see the screen's reflection on his face just changing colors as he's flipping through coordinates or whatever else he's doing. And it just adds a realism to that moment. And, and that sort of thing is in every Spielberg film I've ever seen. And it's just 
it's one of those things that you don't think about, but it, it I, th- I believe it, it firmly places you in that moment, makes you feel like these are real people. And, and like you said, sometimes he uses that as a narrative device, and it's awesome. There's one more character to talk about. We've already sort of talked about him a little bit, so we don't have to linger, but there's the mayor. Um, and I just wanted to highlight a couple of moments where you see how much of a, a dirtbag he is. You, you hear the panic in his voice. But it's not for the reasons that he should be panicking. It's as as Hooper is telling him, this actually isn't the shark that killed these people. It's just a shark. Right. And we need to cut it open to be sure. And the mayor's like, well, I'm more concerned about my image. And I'm more concerned about scaring people here than about finding the truth and making sure we did get the right shark. And there's a press conference he has, uh, or it's not a press conference. It's not the 4th of July when he's on the beach and he's being interviewed. And he says, yeah, we caught a shark and it uh, supposedly injured some swimmers. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he's, he's just being so noncommittal. He's being so wishy-washy and just awful. He gives these looks to Hooper as he's being told about how, the, how big the shark is after Hooper and Brody have gone out in the middle of the night to sort of just see if they can find the shark. And he finds the tooth. And the sunken boat. Mm -hmm. And he comes back and they're telling the mayor about this. And he just says, well, where's the tooth? I can't take your word for it, Mr. Expert. I I need to see the proof in order to close down the beach and stop the incoming flow of cash. And then on the 4th of July, this is one more moment I just want to highlight. He even dares to ask people to get in the water, demand people get in the water to risk their lives for his public image. And this is after at a point where he has been informed of the dangers that this shark poses. So he, he's just an awful person played to perfection, obviously, <laughs> yes. but man, what a character. Yeah. And he's, it's funny because the moment where he becomes humanized and this, I think furthers, you know, it furthers how obvious it is that he's just a terrible person. It's after the shark attack that he's present for, and he goes, well, my kids are on the beach too, you know? And it's like, oh, now you care because it's your kids who are there, you know? I mean, of course you care about your kids, but what about everybody else's kids? And that, yeah, you're absolutely right. And and again, he's the character that I feel in the wrong hands could have been very on the nose, but but Mm -hmm. he's played to perfection and, and he's written to perfection as well. And he really is the villain of the film because for obvious reasons. And again, you know, you said it and I'll dance around it too. I mean, very, very... Very appropriate today. Very of the times we're living in now, let's just say. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, especially in, in your state and, my, and in my state. <laughs> Did you have any other characters to mention before we dive into the fantastic score by Mr. Williams? Oh, man. I mean, I'll just briefly mention Ellen Brody, played by mm-hmm. Lorraine Gary. She, again, she, very human character. Very, I think she grounds Brody even more than he's already grounded. And, and I, I do really appreciate her performance. I mean... That really does pretty much round out the cast. You know, there there aren't a lot of players in this, but but all of them are excellent. And I did I did want to mention her because I feel like she's the perfect I don't want to say foil to Brody, but she's very much his conscience, you know, in a way. Mm-hmm. And and you and I think you learn more about Brody by her presence too, which mm-hmm. is which is really nice. So yeah. I love that scene where after one or two of the attacks, I don't remember exactly its placement, but their son is out in the boat yeah. that he has received as a birthday yes. present. And I mean, it's docked, it's tied up, it's not out in open water. And Brody sort of freaks out and says, oh, you need to get out of that boat. You need to come inside, get away from the water at all costs. And she says, oh, it's no big deal. He's in a boat. He's not in open water. He's not, he's going to be fine. And then she looks <laughs> down at the book that he's been yes. doing research with and sees the, the picture of the, the boat that has 
had a bite taken out of it by a shark. And then she immediately changes her mind and says, get out of the boat now. You heard your father. Yeah. One of the funniest scenes in the film. And it's narratively valuable because you do get just a little bit more. Oh, these things can attack boats too, just in case you didn't know. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's just that thing that Spielberg does where it adds to the story, but it's also funny and or, or mm-hmm. you know, suspenseful or whatever it is. Yeah, it's a great moment. It, I always laugh. I laugh every, I think we all do. It's one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Okay, well, let's dive into Mr. Williams' score. We'll start off by just playing the the theme that everybody is familiar with right here. This theme is the definition of suspense. And I'll go ahead and stop it there. So what do you want to say about just the theme wherever you want to take it <laughs> all ears man well we have not covered this score on our network at sideshow which is uh-huh. which is strange we're going to soonish i would imagine but uh quite possibly the best villain theme ever written i mean i i don't think anybody would really argue with that and and the thing that's really funny about it i've thought about this a lot today because i'm like well you know how am i going to talk about it there's not a lot to talk about i mean it's literally bass celli and piano doing like a marcato thing and then repeating it over and over again with some you know french horn and clarinet and that's it that's the theme and it's the the brilliance is in the simplicity of it and the other thing that's really brilliant about it is john williams intentions with it were basically to convey sharks as mindless eating machines and when you know that listening to it it makes total sense that horn line seems so out of place you know and then and then he doubles it with clarinet just to drive the point further home but it just seems so mindless, if I may say that, you know, and, and so just focused and intent driven, you know, to, to, to kill or to eat or whatever it is. It's amazing. I always, you know, I'm as a composer, I'm always buying new sample libraries, like I'm sure all of us are. And the first thing I do when I'm testing out the legato bass and celli patches is play this theme because <laughs> I think we all do it, you know, and then you dial up the spiccato patch and just dun, 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 dun. it's just so satisfying. <laughs> and and, and the, you know, the other funny thing about it is it's so homogenous a theme for this film that it's a danger when you're scoring a film that has any kind of suspense and you're writing in the low end, it's a danger that you will inadvertently rip this theme off. That's the brilliance of John Williams. It's, you know, we think about how crazy detailed his scores are and how kinetic and, and virtuosic his writing is. But what really makes this man brilliant is in themes like this where just the simplest, most primitive idea. And I'm amazed by it every time I, I listen to it or watch the film. The, the main theme is the, the part that everybody knows, but then there's a, a moment in just the main Jaws theme that comes a little bit later where the strings sweep in. And I, for the first time, sort of like thought about what that could mean or what it represents today. And I think it might be intended to represent sort of the size of the shark. Oh, yeah. Um, this is the theme I'm talking about right here. Like to me, what that communicates is just a, a sort of impending danger in yeah. large size. Like, I don't even know how to exactly say it, uh, but it, it's 
that that big sweeping string melody da, da, dee, da. I, I just think wow this thing is big <laughs> and you know that's a voicing you know that's a tri that's called a tritone chord progression in mm-hmm. in theory terms or whatever and john williams typically uses that kind of thing for example he used it in a new hope when uh r2 and 3po are fired out of the tantive 4 heading back to tatooine and when you see the expanse of tatooine he does the exact same thing he uses that device for the reveal of what tatooine looks like from above and so you are very spot on i think in thinking that because it just it's a it's a it evokes enormity you hear it again in the asteroid uh field cue from empire strikes back same exact thing and Obviously, that situation is huge. So I think you're spot on with that. I think that may be exactly what he's doing. There's also obvious like horror elements to the score. Mm-hmm. Like during the the Indianapolis speech is where Ooh. that that string stuff is chilling. Uh, I've got some of that here too. Like this would be at home in like the beginning of. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or yeah. in, in a spooky tunnel in somewhere in the Indiana Jones franchise or even just like in a, a horror franchise. And you've even got those low rumbles that are very reminiscent of like The Shining by Wendy Carlos. I, I, I love when Williams goes, I wouldn't say out of his element because he's done it several times, but we, we have the spectrum of film composition in this score where you have the, the main theme, you have those sweeping strings, you have brass moments, you have this, this little element of horror music writing. And then you have like the 4th of July beach day (laughs) (laughs) where you're playing happy marches and it's summertime and everybody's having a great time before doom strikes. But I mean, you get the gamut from Mr. Williams here. You definitely do. And, And it's funny because when you hear like the montage cue from this soundtrack, we were my fiance and I were watching this last night and we and she immediately she was like what is this like Harry Potter you know it's it's the same kind of fanfare-ish you know delightful you know into the great hall kind of music but you know again that I think it's sort of it's purposely there to juxtapose the really bad stuff because the cue you just mentioned you know that low guttural hit that you hear in the in the you know in the basses and and to me that's the threat from underneath I feel like you know maybe maybe that's not what he's signifying but that's how i kind of view it it's like just remember you know the grand castle you know it's it's the shark's mm-hmm. still out there you know he's under the surface and 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 i love when williams writes like that because you know he's obviously the themes that we love him for are so diatonic so when he goes atonal or or you know slightly off the beaten path you know he's as good at it as anyone because he's so studied in jazz and and all sorts of unusual voicings and he can scare you as much as anybody can yeah a couple other moments I just wanted to mention. There is the fantastic sort of like action writing. There's a, a track called Hand to Hand Combat mm-hmm. uh, that, that features this, this action music. Which again, I think fits right into the sort of Indiana Jones catalog. And then you go into the theme you know, obviously. But... I love that theme. It's almost sort of ostinato in some respects. Mm -hmm. And then there are are small moments. There's a a little French horn and trumpet melody that plays after Mrs. Kintner, I think her name is. Mm -hmm. The the woman who lost her son shows up and slaps Brody as she walks away. We get this really sad French horn and trumpet motif. 
And then there's music that plays when they're inspecting the capsized boat after they realize that the, the tiger shark obviously wasn't the shark. These little just small moments that maybe don't even repeat throughout the rest of the film where an emotion is highlighted. That's something that Williams is very good at. And you also have even, even Quint's Spanish ladies song is put in the score <laughs> yes. at some point. <laughs> I love it. My, my favorite action cue is probably blown to bits. I love mm-hmm. that cue. And obviously it's sort of the, the culmination of the whole film. But, you know, the interesting thing to me is how Williams deploys that two note minor second shark motif throughout the score. Cause it's so easy to do too, right? Cause it's such a, you know, tiny little, it, it occupies such a small intervalic space that you can pretty much slide it in anywhere and, and it'll, it'll work out. You could even widen the gap between the two intervals and it's still recognizable rhythmically as the shark motif, as the threat motif. So to me, that's one of the most Im- impressive things about the score. Because, you know, if you'd never seen this film and you'd never heard this score other than the theme, you would be forgiven for thinking it's going to be a scary horror score, but it's not. There are moments of horror, there are moments of terror and suspense, but they are few and far between, you know, in terms of the rest of the way Williams chooses to, to score this film. Because he's, I think he's, especially with Spielberg, he tends to play up the more positive sides of the film as much as the darker, scarier stuff. And, and I think that juxtaposition is very much on purpose. And so it adds to a very interesting score that just gets better with age. I mean, it's as good as A New Hope. It's as good as E.T. It's as good as Raiders. It's as good as any of that stuff. And I, I just don't feel like it's talked about as much in the film music community. I don't know. Do you think it is? I mean, I think it might be a tad underrated in his catalog. Yeah, maybe because it's a little older, it's a little bit earlier in their collaborative efforts, mm-hmm. um, and because it does get boiled down to da 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 da. Right, that's what people remember. But there's a lot of playful stuff, and it's it's very like Jurassic Park. I think yes, that way. The, the theme that people know from Jurassic Park isn't the stuff that plays while the T Rex is attacking. No, exactly. There is a lot of lighthearted stuff. You've got bum 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 ba da dee da dum. Oh yeah, there's really great stuff, and you know something I, I really like to highlight just as much as the, the scored moments are the moments that they choose to not score. Yes. Um, and there's one particular scene that I noticed it this time through is the scene where they have tied off the shark onto the boat and it has begun to drag them by the ropes. <laughs> yeah. And that scene is largely unscored. And it just makes that moment even more intense because all of a sudden we, we, use, we associated the shark with the, the music, the, the really intense stuff in that minor interval. And now it's gone. And so we don't really know what to expect, except now the, the shark is dragging the boat, which is terrifying on its own without music. So I think it, it takes a good filmmaker and a good composer to know how to score a certain scene. I also think it takes an even better filmmaker and better composer to know those scenes that don't necessarily need the music. Absolutely. It's the, it's the notes you don't play. It's like jazz, you know, it's like the notes mm-hmm. you don't play are as important as, as important as the ones you do. And yeah, it's, I mean, the, that scene you're talking about, I mean, the sound, the cacophony, the wave sound, and the, that's way more effective in that moment than, than film score would be because you, it just brings you right to the moment, you know, it brings you right to what's happening and it's perfect. But again, when the, mu- when the music does come in, it's spotted so brilliantly by both of those guys, by Spielberg and Williams. I mean, it's just, the music is exactly where it needs to be. The only place that I do think it's, it's a bit off is, you know, some of the 4th of July stuff, some of that fanfare-ish stuff. <laughs> yeah. But even that, I mean, it, it's not 
wrong. You know, it's not scored wrong, of course. How dare anyone say that about John Williams? It's just, <laughs> it, you don't expect it, I guess, when you watch the movie. It's not what you remember. And, you know, it's certainly not something that you think of when you think of Jaws, but it's in there. You know, it's, it's as jubilant as the Great Hall stuff from Harry Potter or some of the flightier moments from Jurassic Park when they're going to the island, you know, and it should be up there in terms of people's appreciation for John Williams. I have one more thing to mention about the score, and it's not even necessarily about the score. And I'm not sure if you're familiar <laughs> with this. Um, there's a YouTube channel called Golden Tusk. Okay. And back in the day, and I'm, I'm talking like early days of YouTube, like 2007, 2008, he would take these film score themes and would write lyrics to them. <laughs> so he did it with Superman. He did it with Jaws. He did it with Back to the Future. He did it with uh, Indiana Jones. And I swear, I mean, this was back when I was still in like middle and high school, honestly. And I still can't get some of his lyrics out of my head <laughs> when listening to these themes. So you, you, that'll be, I'll put the Jaws one in the show notes, but you should check them out. I'm writing it down. I'm going to check it out after the show. Yeah. Or maybe not. So you don't ruin those themes for yourself. Oh yeah. By thinking lyrics every time they play. It's funny. You're, you're saying you hear the words now. And, and mm -hmm. uh, I remember there was a film music podcast I used to listen to way before Sideshow. Um, they were the, they were the original film music podcast, Film Score Monthly Online. Mm -hmm. They used to have a show and I remember they, they were singing the night at the museum theme and they, yeah. and it was the first time I ever heard the theme for night at the museum by Alan Silvestri. And since that day, I've not been able to unhear it. So every time I hear that theme, I'm, it's ruined by John and Al Kaplan singing, you know, night at the museum. Like it's just, it's in there. So <laughs> I, I definitely know what you mean. That's one of those things that, that especially if you're musically minded, like both of us are, you know, you're never going to unhear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I just had to throw that in there because it makes me laugh that even now, 13 years later, however long it's been, I, I, I have lyrics to the Jaws theme song. So <laughs> I have to hear it now. I have to check these out. <laughs> okay. Well, we've already talked a lot about the impact that this film has had. That's actually something that has changed since the last time you're on is we, we changed the relevance section to the impact section, the things that have stuck with us. Okay. Or the lessons. We could still talk about those as well. The biggest thing that I have written down is stuff that I've already sort of alluded to. The idea of authority putting self-interest over the safety of others. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't necessarily want to talk too much about that. Did you have anything that sort of sticks with you about this film? We, we've also already talked about sort of like the impact that this film has had on film. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. the first blockbuster. It was Spielberg's first huge film. Is there anything you have to say to add to that? I just, and this is going to sound so lazy, but it's the truth. And, and it's pretty much my biggest takeaway every time I watch it. It just reminds me of why Spielberg is considered to be, by many people, myself included, the greatest living director and one of America's greatest gifts to the world. I mean, yeah. it's just some of the creative decisions in this film are mind-bogglingly brilliant. And some of the gutsiest decisions also because like the decision to show the shark list because it was you know cheap and again you know you you look at something like jurassic park i remember when the when the blu-ray you know the re-release of the blu-ray came out back in i think it was 2013 and i bought it it was the first time i'd seen jurassic park in a couple of years I, I tend to watch it every year a few times but i hadn't in a while and it was the first time i had seen jurassic park on blu-ray and i was like okay the dinosaurs are going to look fake. Let's know that going in. You know, let's not be disappointed by that. No, they did not look fake. And the amazing thing about this is Jurassic Park was the first real 
blockbuster film to incorporate copious amounts of CGI. Not, mm-hmm. not copious amounts, but CGI in large scale scenes, you know? I mean, I, actually, ironically, there's not that much CGI in the film in terms of per minute. But it's the same thing with this film. The, the, the decision to just really, really carefully frame the shark Frame it from its best angles, you know, just the certain cuts that were made, the certain decisions to incorporate something like the barrels instead of, you know, the actual shark itself or or using the camera as the shark, putting you in in the place of the shark, the music. I mean, it's just it's it's got Spielberg written all over it. So my biggest takeaway, the biggest impact for me is just remembering what a gift this man is to cinema and how different the world would be without him, quite frankly. I mean, imagine. Imagine American cinema without Steven Spielberg. It's a very depressing thought. <laughs> I'd rather not. <laughs> yeah, would someone have risen up to be? No. I mean, just there's no one like the guy. And he doesn't always knock it out of the park. Some of his movies are lackluster. But when he hits it out of the park, I mean, he hits it into low Earth orbit. And this is the first example of that. I think it shows a lot about a director when they are faced with difficulties and how they overcome those yes and it shows how a how he was able to sort of not fly by the seat of his pants but to make adjustments on the fly and to adapt by necessity largely i mean the the movie isn't the way it is today because it's the way he first envisioned it right it's because he reacted to things that were happening difficulties that he had to overcome and this was the result and what that tells me is that he faces pressure well and is able to do a lot with a little because, I mean, this wasn't like something that got a huge budget necessarily either. I'm looking at the, the budget on uh, Wikipedia right now, and it says its initial budget was $9 million, <laughs> and it made $470 million. And if you adjust all of those numbers for inflation, yeah. it's still extremely impressive. I mean, I heard this film was one of the most difficult experiences of the man's life, and to be, to be able to pivot the way he did and deliver a movie that's better than he initially thought it would be or or envisioned it. Like you said, that's incredibly impressive. And if I may just add one more thing, Mm -hmm. it's the thing that people miss when they try to emulate him. It's the thing that people just don't seem to be able to grasp. I love, I'm sorry. I like the, uh, the two new Jurassic park films that have come out and I'm not here to trash talk them in any way. (laughs) I I enjoyed both of them. Um, I've enjoyed every Jurassic park film to be, to be honest. I love two and three also, but, the thing that's missing from Jurassic Worlds 1 and 2 is just the, the over-reliance on the spectacle of it and the under-reliance on character. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, just completely missing the point of, you know, what you don't show is sometimes more important than what you do show. And, and that's what Spielberg is incredibly great at. And he learned that from one of the greatest directors ever, Alfred Hitchcock. You know, it was the same thing with him. And it just seems to be missing on modern cinema. It seems to be lost on modern directors who are probably being pressured you know to spend every penny of the budget on the biggest spectacle they can and that's why a lot of it falls flat i think sometimes you know i mean i really like the the new jurassic park films but they are not remotely in the same league as jurassic park one you know or jaws or any you know any of his other great films so that's my other big takeaway too i do wish people took the chances that he took in this film Mm -hmm. scaled up to you know 2020 Right. I watching this movie made me really want to visit the special features on the Blu-ray. I love special features on Blu-rays, but I don't make time for them often enough mm-hmm. nowadays. Yeah. And so I 
There's a making of documentary on the Blu-ray. It's fantastic. <laughs> there are a couple other special features that I saw that I wanted to check out as well. So I, I think I'm going to in the next couple of days, probably watch all of those. You should. And I also want to find like a book. I'm sure there's got to be a book somewhere detailing the production of this movie. So I'm going to be searching for that as well. <laughs> yeah, the feature length documentary. The, if you have the same one I have, I have the re-release that came out four or five years ago. Yeah, it was for the Universal 100th anniversary. That's or the one. Like that. That's when they remastered, digitally remastered it. I mean, first of all, fantastic transfer. It's never looked better. But also, yeah, that, that feature length documentary, you will be riveted, my friend. You'll love it. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to diving in. So, do we have any final closing thoughts about the movie before we close the show? It's a terrible movie. Just awful. <laughs> Ter- terrible, <laughs> awful. Uh, just a, it's just a revelation. I mean, what, what can you say? I watch, you know, the original Star Wars trilogy often, and there's a certain point with those films, and, I, and it bums me out, but I've seen them so many times that I'm not, I'm not impacted like I should be, because I know every line of dialogue, I know every beat, I know every cue, you know? I've, st- I've mm-hmm. watched Empire so many times that I just know every breathing second of that film. And ironically, I, know, I certainly haven't watched Jaws as much, but every single time I watch Jaws, I'm riveted. Every single time. I mean, I... I just sit down and it renews my faith in the art form that is cinema. I mean, there are very few films that that do that for me, and it's definitely one of them. It just, you know, if you're a fan of film, you sit down and you watch this and you know a little bit about how the, you know, how the making of it transpired, you will be absolutely riveted by the art on your screen. And so my final thoughts, you know, buy the Blu-ray, you know, get get the physical copy. You'll also actually get the iTunes copy with the Blu-ray. So you'll mm-hmm. so you'll get both. So that's worth it. But then watch it on the biggest screen you can and just enjoy every freaking second of it. And thank your lucky stars that Steven Spielberg is still making movies. So those are my closing yeah. thoughts. It actually came out in 4K Ultra HD a month ago. So go get the 4K, everybody. <laughs> I didn't even know that, actually. Yeah, I, I might have to go for that. <laughs> See if there's a nice steel book somewhere. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go for that. Well, because this, this version that the Blu-ray uh, release uh, that blu-ray release was actually the, the 4k rescan mm-hmm. so it's the same scan it's just not compressed so i'm definitely going to be picking that up well if that's all we have to say that's the end of the 91st episode of cinescope thank you will so much for coming back it was nice to talk with you just like one to talk about this movie but just to catch up likewise i haven't talked to you in for so long it's been a long it's been way too long we gotta we gotta make sure that doesn't happen again yeah definitely Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast, at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please go over to iTunes. That is the podcast's lifeblood is talking about it and sharing it and promoting it on iTunes. That's how we get new listeners. So definitely go do that or Apple Podcasts, I should say. Um, <laughs> and if you have now. feedback or <laughs> ideas, uh, you can email Podcast at gmail.com. Now, Will, what would you like to plug? Just Sideshow right now. I mean, uh, yeah, follow us. Uh, SideshowSoundTheater.com is our website. And on social media, we can be found at SideshowSound on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. And Sideshow Sound Theater, spelled the British way, R-E at the end on Facebook. And uh, yeah, we're also on, on, we're not just on Apple Podcasts, we're actually now on Spotify as well. So check us out there. If you like Spotify, I like Spotify. <laughs> and I'll put this in the show notes, but what's your Twitter as well? Because if people tweet Sideshow Sound, they're going to be talking to Wendell. True, that's true. <laughs> yeah, Wendell does run that. Um, I'm Will underscore Dodson one on Twitter. Excellent. 
The best place to find me is on Twitter at Shadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, my other podcast, An American Workplace, where we talked about NBC's The Office episode by episode. You can find the archive of that and new bonus episodes that are coming out every week from our Patreon back in the day. You can find that where podcasts can be found and workplacepodcast.com. Show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is it. Thanks one more time, Will, for coming on. Hopefully it won't be such a long gap before you come back on. And go check out Sideshow Sound, everybody, because it's amazing if you are at all interested in film scores or if you would like to be more interested in film scores. (laughs) Just go find a score guide for one of your favorite films. There's plenty in the archive and you will have a really great time. Thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure to be here with you again, and I hope, uh, I hope you'll have me back on soon. I really love this show. Thank you, Will. And I'm looking forward to hopefully being on Sideshow. You will, you will, absolutely. <laughs> to, to talk about Back to the we Future. Get you, we gotta get that Back to the Future thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, everybody. Have fun and celebrate movies. <laughs> <laughs>